Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, July the 26th, 2023. It's one of the great themes of Keenon. How much can we learn from history about our current digital disruption? Is history a guide or is it a sideshow? One man who's given a great deal of thought to this is my old friend Jeff Jarvis. He teaches at CUNY in New York and he has a new book out, The Gutenberg Parenthesis, The Age of Print and Its Lessons for the Age of the Internet. So I began my conversation with Jeff today asking him whether or not history repeats itself. History doesn't repeat itself, it doesn't even rhyme, but there are lessons from history that we can learn. The, the idea of the Gutenberg parenthesis is that print was an exception in history. Uh, it's a theory that came from three academics at the University of Southern Denmark. And what they say is that we are returning to a world before print, that is to say one that's more conversational, where knowledge is passed around click to click and changed along the way. There's less of a sense of ownership and authorship of text and information. And, and we have lessons to learn, I think, from our entry into the age of print as we leave it. I'm not a technological determinist. Technology is not determinant. History does not repeat itself. But as we face the change we face now, it's worthwhile, I think, to look at the lessons we can see from our entry, and it took a long time, into the age of print. Jeff, ever since I've known you over the last quarter of a century, you've always been talking about this Gutenberg guy. What's, what's the big deal about Gutenberg? Why has he fascinated you so much? I think this is really the second book you've written about Gutenberg. He really does fascinate me because I think he was the or entrepreneur. He had to face all kinds of technological challenges and metallurgy and chemistry of ink and qualities of paper and processes to print and inventing uh, God knows what all to make print work. He also had to deal with risk capital. He had to borrow money because he was printing books on paper that he didn't uh, couldn't sell yet and with ink he couldn't sell yet. And he had to go to a financier, one of the early VCs in that sense, named Johann Fust. Uh, in the end, they split up the business. The, the, the report over the years has been that Fust screwed Gutenberg and left him penniless. That's just not true. Gutenberg did fine. Fust went off on his own business that went on for more than a century with his family. Um, they built something quite amazing together. And here's Gutenberg, who we know very little about, actually. We only know his process from what followed. He apparently didn't use the press to print his own name, which is what we'd all do with it, because we're all egotists. Um, but he started something that was clearly momentous. How radical, in your view, I mean, you're not the first or the last to write about this, how radical was this technolo technological innovation when it came, when it comes to reading? Uh, particularly in terms of democratization. This is another theme that I know you spend a lot of your career writing and thinking about. I think print was, in fact, quite radical. Now, there's some debate as to whether print was inevitable, and if Gutenberg hadn't done it, someone else would. By the way, it's important to mention that movable type was first invented and used quite a bit before in China and Korea, but didn't spread to Europe. So this is the beginning of the story uh, in the West. Uh, print was radical not just in in the book you know if you think about gutenberg he was a man of the scribe's age he wasn't a man of his own age that occurred later it took 50 years before the book as we know it now to take its own form with page numbers and titles and title pages and indices and so on what happened at first was that he was recreating the work of the scribes and trying to make it more efficient and a better business out of it Obviously, though, print caused huge disruption as it went along, and it wasn't just books. It was also in bureaucracy, uh, starting with indulgences. It was in the ability to put down laws in print. It was the fact that, come Martin Luther, who chose to publish in German, a public was created around the print that he made, the pamphlets that he made for the Reformation, obviously. And in choosing to publish in German, he also started to codify and, 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 and uh, standardize the German language and thus the sense of Germanness and nationhood. Those kinds of changes, I think, were really profound, but they took a long time, Andrew, before it came along. Again, 50 years before the book left its incunabular or its infant phase, 
150 years before we saw tremendous innovation with print until we saw around the year 1600 uh, Cervantes uh, creating the modern novel, Montaigne creating the essay, Shakespeare leading to a market for printed plays, and the invention of the newspaper. What's striking about that to me is that it took that long for the technology to become boring, the technology and the technologists to fade in the background. And then what was interesting was what was done with print. I think we're still in the phase today where we concentrate on the technology and all the bad that can happen with it, and we haven't really yet begun to reinvent and discover what we can do with the technology we now have. Jeff, you're also a keen observer of contemporary politics. Um, how bound up in the invention of, of print, Guten, the, the Gutenberg uh, revolution, was the Reformation and Luther I guess you'd call it political or spiritual, and that sort of oddly democratic, but in some ways authoritarian shift in history, away from the organized church towards the religion of the self. The first printers did what the scribes did, and they concentrated on the ancients. And so by this, the, the 1500, half century after Gutenberg, the, the business was suffering. Uh, the market was sated, uh, money had poured into it, uh, poured into it, and uh, the printers were printing out the books that people already had, and they were suffering badly. So first off, Luther was a salvation to the printing business. In Wittenberg, his little printer in town uh, saw a lot of business from Gutenberg and others from, from Luther and others around. Along comes the Reformation. One could argue that Luther could succeed because of print. Jan Hus, who came before, got burned at the stake for his heresy. Uh, the Pope tried to uh, tamp down Luther, but couldn't because the print was so wide, and uh, led to the Counter-Reformation as well. It also led, of course, to the Thirty Years' War. One could argue this goes on to this day. A few years ago at the uh, International Journalism Festival in Perugia, I was debating a German regulator, which is a load of fun, and I said that, you know, who knows, in this current transition, our 30 years war could be still be ahead of us. And he said, and I swear with no irony, it's too soon to joke about that. Um, Borrowing from Chow and Lai. Uh, exactly. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think the changes were profound. Again, it's not deterministic. It, the technology does not determine what's going to happen. Uh, we do that with our own decisions. We do that with how we use it. And it's going to be good and bad. Uh, but it is an inevitability that we're going to have this technology and we are going to use it. McLuhan famously wrote about the medium and the message. In terms of Luther's message of the individuality of, of God and of predestination and all the other existential um, questions and forms of grief that Luther uh, introduced into the, the Christian lexicon, how much was the medium and the message bound up with one another. Was there something about print that lent itself? I, I understand you don't want to be deterministic and say technology leads to a certain kind of outcome, but there was a relationship, Jeff, wasn't there, between the medium and the message? Oh, I, I, I do think so, um, in a few senses. Right? One was that Luther, uh, we don't know whether he really banged his theses onto the, onto the door of the Wittenberg church, but we do know there was printed on Raoul Gutenberg's press there in Wittenberg. And that had an impact, that it, it, it went out. It went out in German, which means that it wasn't just an academic and church audience. Then he published not so much at first books, but very importantly, pamphlets, Flugschriften, a flying script, uh, things that were very short, easy to print quickly, easy to get out there quickly, easy to sell quickly. That made a big difference. Luther, by the way, didn't take money from his press, unlike Erasmus, who, who did take money. Luther thought it was important to just get it out there. So the press was indeed a medium for that. Luther also used it in other ways. He created the, his Bible, his translation of the Bible, which was critical to the religion, but also, again, to the language of German and the sense of Germanness. And he was a major publisher of hymns, hymns and music as a, as a way to spread his, his message. And then, of course, others followed. Calvin also used print in important ways. So, yes, I think print was critical. The question is, is there a, again, history does not repeat itself, but is there a comparable view today? Uh, I argue, going a bit out on a limb, that I wonder whether, uh, A, we haven't seen our Luther, we may never, or B, have we indeed seen our, our Reformation in the sense of 
Black Lives Matter in the sense of using the medium uh, in a way to make a political message. And January 6th, in that sense, is the counter-reformation. What what happens whenever there's a medium that enables more voices to speak, those who held the control of it before resent it, try to stop it, and that's what we see today as well. Before we get to January 6th, Black Lives Matter, and the relevance of the age you're studying, the Gutenberg age with today, it seems to me as if you're arguing that it's not today that's exceptional, it's the Industrial Revolution. You've made this argument in all sorts of forms. What is it about the Industrial Revolution that wasn't repeated in history, that's exceptional, that's different from both the Reformation and today? Well, in media terms, I think that we need to... One surprise that came out to me in researching the book was how conversational the early days of print were. Luther in conversation with the Pope over their books and burnings of them, Erasmus and her fr- his friend Sir Thomas More writing letters to each other that are in print uh, in Utopia, for example. Um, Richardson and his novels listening to his audience and changing his novels in next editions. It was highly conversational. Then came the mechanization and industrialization of print, starting around the year 1800 with stereotyping, followed by steam-powered presses, rotary presses, uh, paper made from wood pulp instead of instead of old bloomers, and finally the linotype, my favorite machine ever that made type a line at a time. All of that changed media fundamentally. Obviously, it made it mass. Before the mechanization of print, the average circulation of a daily newspaper in the United States was 4,000. It was a good Substack newsletter. Then after... This podcast even gets more than that. Bingo. Uh, And so afterwards, what happened? Scale entered. The mass entered. A new business model based on attention entered. It was in the 1890s that a magazine editor realized that he could sell his magazine for a dime, losing money on every copy, making money on advertising. That is the advertising model that we still have on the internet today and that kind of corrupts the internet. So what happened, I think that's important, is the mechanization and industrialization of media led to the creation of mass media and then the idea of the mass. And that's something I decry in the book. I think that the idea of the mass is is fundamentally an insult to the public. It's a way not to listen to people, not to understand their individuality, to see us all as a lumpen proletariat and to try to sell uh, widgets to us all. So now on the internet, now people can be seen as individuals. They don't have to be seen as the mass. They, they gather in communities online. And I think we start to see a different motif around our mirror in media. The end of the conversation. Um, Tom Standage, the deputy editor of The Economist, wrote a, a wonderfully counterintuitive history of social media, suggesting that, uh, like you, that the Industrial Revolution put an end to the conversation. You talk about the internet. Uh, could it be argued, uh, Jeff, that Luther and the period you write about and Gutenberg were themselves inventors of a kind of social media? Um, yeah, I think uh, you baited me well there. I, I think that, that we could argue that they made something that was far more social. In fact, I would argue that Luther, in, again, in publishing in German and publishing to his audience was creating a public. Habermas famously it, it contends that the public sphere emerged in the coffee houses of London uh, much later with the magazines uh, like the Spectator that came along. Uh, but I think that publics were created earlier around Luther's pamphlets, around books and translations. And I, and I think that's important. The other interesting part about social media is Montaigne. In, in, in creating the essay, Montaigne created a form. Uh, Andrew Sullivan says that he's the patron saint of bloggers. Uh, but he created a form of talking about yourself and and talking to the public as an imagined audience. Um, and I think that, in a sense, was a very early form of social media. Sarah Bickwell has a wonderful book about Montaigne, and others talk about how he still speaks to us today because he spoke out of his life. And that's part of what I think we do, for better and worse, online now. You mentioned Sullivan, of course, a very distinguished conservative. Could it be argued, Jeff, that there's a kind of conservative piece of your argument in the sense that you've always been a great fan of the internet, but you're suggesting now that the internet is a return to tradition. It opens up the possibility for us to recapture things that we lost before. I I do think that we are 
reinvigorating the public conversation, but we have lost the skill as a society. And what happens when the conversation is so controlled for so long? People burst out with everything they've always wanted to say, and it's not pleasant and it's not pretty. I think we have to invent new institutions that don't return to the old institutions. My favorite story is this. In 1470, there came what is said to be the first call for censorship of this new medium of print by Niccolò Perotti, who was a translator in Italy who was much offended by a shoddy translation of Pliny. And he wrote to the Pope and said, Your Holiness, you must appoint a censor, an erudite, an intelligent person to judge all these forms before they're printed. And as I thought about it, he wasn't asking for a censor at all because he wasn't asking to... Uh, tamp down ideas. He was asking for quality. He was, he was thinking ahead and, and, and imagining the institutions of editing and publishing that would follow and that would do a very good job of assuring quality for 450 years. Those institutions are not adequate to the volume and the scale of speech today. So we're going to have to create new institutions. And what we're doing now is very much like Perotti. We're concentrating on everything we don't like, everything that's bad. And it's a bit of a fool's errand to think that we can clean up all of human conversation and all of the internet. What we have to start doing is concentrating on the good, on finding quality and artistry and authority and credibility and to find the good stuff. <clears throat> Pardon me. So we're going to have to create new institutions or reinvigorate old institutions like journalism to do these tasks. And is that why you call your book the Gutenberg Parenthesis? <laughs> What's the parenthetical um, nature of your argument in terms of the book? It, it comes from Tom Pettit, Lars Ole Sauerberg, and Marianne Borch who came up with that. And, and Pettit instructs me that in the United States we think the parenthesis is the actual devices, whereas in the UK, correct me if I'm wrong, it is perceived to be what is inside the parenthesis. And what was inside the parenthesis was this culture of print. Uh, Marshall McLuhan said that uh, the line, and this sentence is an example, becomes our organizing principle for life. Uh, we think things have a beginning and an end, an alpha and omega. Things are contained. The whole idea of writing in newspapers is that we can contain a story and we can explain everything that way. Whereas on the web, things have no beginning and they have no end, which I think is a more honest view of the chaos of life. And the conversation that we hear is the cacophony of democracy, which is also a more honest view of society than Walter Cronkite telling everyone every night, and that's the way it is. You mentioned Cronkite, another C word, uh, with conversation. Didn't Cronkite stimulate conversation? It wasn't the final uh, point in, in anything. All, all Cronkite was telling everyone is what was happening. And then they went back to their, their lives and they discussed it. The problem today is there isn't a Cronkite to establish a level playing field in terms of determining what's actually happening in the world. That myth of the great shared narrative, I think, is a myth. And I think it came with television. It came with television killing a lot of newspapers. And uh, it was a market necessity to say that we are going to tell you the story for everyone. When Cronkite said, and that's the way it is, for many Americans, it was not the way it is. If you were black, if you were Latino, an immigrant, disabled, gay, and so on, you didn't see yourself represented in old media. You only saw people who looked like me, old white men. And, and so there was a vision of reality that was not complete, that did not have different perspectives and different experiences. And now we're hearing that. And again, it's a more nuanced, complicated view, but I think it's a far more realistic and truthful and honest view of the world than we got from that 50-year period of the myth of the national shared narrative. If there is a, a Cronkite today, maybe it's Anderson uh, Cooper, um, who unlike Cronkite, speaks or tries to speak to everyone. He may be a skian of, of the American aristocracy, but he's open, he's openly gay, and he's concerned with people of different skins and sexualities and economic statuses. Wh why can't that work, Jeff? Why can't you simply have um, a more egalitarian, inclusive equivalent of, 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 of Cronkite, a, a Cooper or, or an Oprah Winfrey or somebody like that? Uh, Anderson Cooper is very good, but he also speaks primarily to people who are over the age of 60. Uh, the audience is small for CNN. The audience for everything is small. And this comes back to the myth of the mass. And it's the way we look 
even at the internet today, we tend to think, well, Twitter is big and Mastodon is small. When I joined Mastodon, I found a critical mass of friends quickly and Blue Sky and Threads. And as Mark Zuckerberg once said to me years ago, no two people on earth ever see the same Facebook. We think that we're talking to the whole world when we talk on Twitter or Facebook. We're not. We're talking to a small audience. So is Anderson Cooper in the larger scheme of things. That has always been the case. We in media had to tell the advertisers we could deliver everyone to them, but we never did, and we certainly don't now. And I don't think that's a bad thing. On my desk at home, I have a very thick book that is a directory of all the newspapers in America. And in New York alone, there were scores of newspapers. And they spoke to different communities' needs and different voices and spoke for them as well. And I think that's what we see is a, is, a, is a briefer parenthesis of returning to a media before TV and a slightly longer parenthesis where we can see a media that goes before the mechanization of print and recapture some of the early days of print. And then the larger parenthesis of looking back even before print. You're one of the most trenchant, defiant and articulate defenders of the digital revolution and culture. Uh, and you're all too familiar with the critiques. Are there people, are there critiques that are justified? Are there um, critics of, of, of the digital revolution who you would acknowledge makes sense? Uh, yes, even you, Andrew, and we and we get along over the years. Uh, we disagree and we agree. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying, I'm working Calling on- for compliments there, <laughs> wasn't I? I'm working on a new book now, which is a book about the internet, which I'm probably going to regret having agreed to do. And in it is much criticism of the net. But, you know, I think that what we have to do is separate out criticism of the technology versus criticism of human use of it. Uh, many of the problems we complain about are problems of us, of humanity, that become amplified or visible on the net. The net did not make us hate, it did not make us racist, it did not make us sexist. Society already was all those things. It brings it out. The net is often accused of making filter bubbles and echo chambers, but there's a lot of research. There's a book called Are Filter Bubbles Real? by Axel Bruns, which brings in all the research that was available at the time and says that filter bubbles aren't real. And uh, Michael Bong Peterson, a researcher in Denmark, says that the filter bubbles that we build are those in our real lives, where we move to the neighborhoods and work at the companies and join the clubs and the people who are like us. And the internet, contrary to the popular belief, doesn't create the filter bubble, it pops it. And it exposes us to the strangers, to the people we may fear. And it gives us a handy supply of spitballs to throw at them as well. And so we have to examine what of the things we hate about the internet, one of the things that we complain about on the internet are the technology's faults, and some of them are, and what is just simply our fault, and we have to deal with. When we have a moral panic about the internet, what that does is prevent us from dealing with the underlying problems, the underlying uh, pathologies in our society. It's easy to say, aha, it's all Mark Zuckerberg's fault, or Lord knows, Elon Musk's fault. And that's the problem. But we all know that if we turned off Twitter and turned off Facebook and turned off the internet today, we would still have the problems that we have. In the new book, I do criticize the internet. I think that the main problem, in my view, for the internet companies, and I include myself in this as an observer, is that we were too optimistic. And we didn't see enough, they didn't see enough, and neither did I, how these tools would be manipulated by malign actors, um, and did not, they did not build the guardrails uh, necessary. Also, uh, and I've complained about this for years, Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, when I interviewed him for my book, Public Parts, you know, said it's a, it's a good to bring together and connect society. Our friend Siva Varianathan says that's a mistake. We shouldn't do that at all. I disagree. I think it's good to connect society. I think it's inevitable to happen. But what Zuckerberg didn't have was a further North Star. He didn't have a statement of why is Facebook here? What do we want to do together? What do we consider our mission and, and what is acceptable and what is not? Uh, instead, they ended up with statutory community standards, not of the community, but opposed upon them that are very detailed about how you, in what context you can show a female breast. And then the oversight board says they call on that and they call on human rights. Well, in the middle, there's a huge canyon that I think needs to be filled by a constitution, a North Star, a covenant of mutual obligations. And the companies need to give us their assurances of what they promise us, not just demand things of us, so that they can be held to account for that by the likes of the Federal Trade Commission or whoever regulates them. You mentioned Moore's Utopia earlier, which was in part a, 
uh, a collection of correspondences between Erasmus and Thomas More himself. More, of course, was a defender of the status quo, nostalgic for a Catholic world that was fast disappearing. Eventually, he paid with his life for that. Um, it seems to me that it, 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 in the 2020s, we are history is repeating itself in the sense that we have these two parallel things going on simultaneously. On the one hand, the old world isn't going away fast enough. So we've got the Bidens and the Trumps, these 80-year-old politicians who are, nobody likes but are just there, and these old political parties that nobody much likes but are just there. And at the same time, uh, these revolutionary ideas and technologies and forces and institutions. Is there some truth to that, Jeff? Are we living... The, the, the oddity, the surreal nature of our age is we're living at a time where both the old and the new are coexisting in a very odd, uncomfortable way. Yes, I'll agree with that. I'm not sure it hasn't been ever thus. Uh, by the way, I like Joe Biden. Um, I, I, you, know, I, you, you like his message, but I'm not sure you like him uh, as an 80-year-old guy who stumbles around. I, 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 well, I'm stumbling too. My knees are shot. Yeah, but you're not president. Uh, no, I'm not, and you're glad for it. Uh, I, I do think that you're right, and it's a larger... I, I see it in a few contexts. I see it, yes, in the generational context that, that you say. But interestingly, I, I taught a course uh, almost a year ago with our friend Douglas Rushkoff mm. called Reinventing the Internet. And it was really interesting, Andrew, that the students who were master's age students came to age with the internet after it was already centralized and corporate. And uh, they couldn't imagine the internet that you and I know from before. And thus they couldn't imagine an internet after that. And so I, my whole job teaching journalism and teaching students today is to try to get them to say that they have the power and the agency to reinvent things. Now, to some extent, they don't because they work for big companies and bosses who frustrate them, and that makes life difficult, and that's all true. Whenever there's change, there's reaction to the change. Obama being elected led to Trump being elected. Um, Black Lives Matter leads to January 6th, uh, and who wins in those battles, we don't know. But I think that we do know, once again, that when new voices, they're not new voices, when voices who previously couldn't be heard are heard, there will be a reaction against that until we get used to it, until we figure it out. I think we've seen a lot of progress in society. Uh, I used to live here in San Francisco. I was here, I was a friend of Harvey Milk's uh, as a journalist, you know, friend, um, uh, and, and I saw the beginning of an incredible movement here. And you think about the progress that has since been made, not nearly enough, but still an impressive amount that has been made uh, starting here in San Francisco. Those kinds of movements, those kinds of efforts, I do think will continue apace and with resistance at every step. And so my real point is that we have to learn, again, the lessons of the past so that we can anticipate that again and maybe not have a 30 years war. It seems as if your, your work, the book, and, and, and your worldview has perhaps a parallel or perhaps even contradictory historiographical uh, analysis of the world. On the one hand, you have this Whiggish version that suggests, like in good MLK form, that over time the arc of progress improves. On the other hand, you're focusing on Gutenberg and reminding ourselves of the lessons of history. Is that fair? Do you see history as a process where the world inevitably, over the long term, improves? No, it's not inevitable, but I think the path in the past has been that generally that's what happens. We figure things out. Um, I, but we have wars and we have struggle and we have loss and we have injustice along the way, but eventually we figured out print. And uh, I start the book off with a quote from Mark Twain, who on the alleged 500th birthday of Johann Gutenberg said he wanted to re-examine the impact of print. And it said it brought us a heaven and a hell but even with the worst that it brought, in the sum, he believed the print gave society a great deal. Now, will the same be said in 500 years about our networked world now? You and I don't know, because we're both too old to know where this is, how this is gonna turn out. Uh, and society could fuck it up miserably, and they will along the way, assuredly. But I think we're self-interested enough 
that eventually we will figure out how to use these tools well. The use of the tools so far is much like Gutenberg and the scribes. It is the analog of the past. It's McLuhan again. McLuhan who said every new medium fills itself with the content of the old medium. Um, Gutenberg uh, just tried to uh, mechanize the work of the scribes. Newspapers and magazines online are still recognizable as newspapers and magazines. They haven't re this is my frustration in journalism. We haven't reinvented ourselves for these new needs, these new institutions we have to create to find quality and to find authority. Newspapers aren't doing that to the need we have to bring us into conversation and make it more productive. Newspapers aren't doing that. They're still trying to do what they've done for the last hundred years and whine to regulators to get money to support what they did. And there's some good little experiments going on out there like City Bureau and Outlier Media and Spaceship Media and Documented and so on, but they're small. Uh, and, and, and I think we're gonna have to see a vanguard of innovators. That's what I hope my students will be to start to reinvent our field. What about the relationship, you've been touching on it, but you haven't really focused on it between all this new technology and democracy. You suggest, I think implicitly, that it resulted in a, in a new kind of democracy. It took time, of course, it took two or three centuries in Central Europe. What is the relationship between all this new technology and the technology of writing and reading mass technologies of reading and writing and the emergence of democracy in England and America in the 18th and 19th century, a certain kind of democracy, of course, which excluded women and, and, and slaves and so on. If we give Habermas his due, I think that important things did happen in the coffee houses of London when people came together from different, uh, well, not widely different classes, but, but more, more diversity than had existed before. They were able to discuss the news. They formed as a public, he argues, as a public sphere. Uh, he argues that it was a rational debate. I don't think that's necessarily the case. It was raucous and sometimes injurious to people. Uh, but there was a public there that we can see. And that public leads to a sense of democracy, of the public having a role uh, in the discussion of what the state does. Uh, so yes, I think that we see a, a beginning there. And I think we see the same thing happening now where uh, new publics, it's always plural, uh, form and form around ideas and needs. And um, you know, I think that will happen. Now, whether it's writing or not is an interesting question at the, at the moment in which we speak, because here comes an abundance <clears throat> of writing from everybody out there uh, on social media. And uh, you and I are writers, so we have always had a special position. And a lot of people are intimidated by writing. But social media comes along and they express themselves as they wish with their friends. They use memes and emojis as, as new alphabets to do this. And then now comes AI and, and machine learning, <clears throat> pardon me, that churns out words that sound credible enough and suddenly we as writers aren't so special as we used to be. And I think, you probably won't like this opinion, but I think that uh, large language models uh, shouldn't be used, you'll you will agree about this, should not be used to produce news because it can't do facts. But I do think there are interesting uses to augment the processes of journalists and writing, but also to extend literacy. All those people who since Montaigne have been left out of the public conversation because they weren't writers can now use tools to help them express themselves better, to write, to illustrate the stories of their lives and their experiences. And I think that's the most interesting possible use of these new tools. Now, in a sense, all it does is it makes everybody use the same cliches we've all used, and it code switches, but that's where we are now. We expect a certain kind of language to be part of the public discourse, and I think it can bring more people into it. Uh, earlier this week, um, Jeff, we had um, uh, Joe Allen uh, on, the, on the show. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's the tech guy at Steve Bannon's uh, podcast, probably no great ideological friend of, of yours or, or mine for that matter. He talked about the crisis of democracy being the crisis of knowing, no one agreeing on the facts. Um, is there any truth to that? I mean, you hear the same critique from the left, of course, as well. Is the crisis of democracy one of, if you like, informational trust or truth? That's ironic coming from somebody uh, who works for Bannon who tries to destroy uh, trust in facts just there. Um, I, I, 
we have a problem with facts, yes. We have a problem with people knowing what they are. But again, I think that it's more than facts. There's a lot of nuance involved. One of the things that I think has ruined democracy, and this is out of James Carey, the late great Columbia professor, uh, believed that the opinion poll was the ruin of democracy because it preempted the public conversation it was intended to measure. And it put power in the hands of the surveyor to say, here are the buckets we're going to throw you into, white versus black, red versus blue, 99% versus 1%. And it lost all the nuance of the discussion. And so I don't think it's just the facts. I think that's the, that's the MacGuffin uh, in, in, in this. I think it's also lived experience and nuance and understanding going both ways. Um, that's the problem I think we have in democracy right now, A. B, I think that we have people who um, are performative and facts don't matter to them. They will say what they want because it, 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 it displays, uh, it marks them for who they are. And then number three, or C, whichever I was doing, is that media then amplify it as if at face mm -hmm. value rather than recognizing when they're being used themselves and manipulated. You know, it was bad when, when Trump was in office and every damned tweet he made turned into an entire news story. And now they're doing the same thing with Elon Musk. Every damn tweet, you watch the next time that he tweets something and there will be stories across all of media writing a news story about this jerk having to fart some opinion of his. Um, that is injurious to the idea of trust and public conversation. That gets attention. That gets to be uh, amplified by media. And the nuanced views of people's actual lives and needs don't get attention. What happens when you have what you might call ontological fragmentation, uh, fragmentation in the world? So using the example of Trump, seems to me that on the one hand, when Trump says, oh, the election was fixed and I lost and I really won, his supporters don't actually believe it. They're interpreting him as a performative artist, a real-time television buffoon. Um, whereas you and I and the progressives will say, you're wrong, you're lying, the facts say this, this and that. Can you have democracy, Jeff, or even a viable media when you have this ontological fragmentation, when some people view the world in scientific, logical, analytical terms and others in performative terms? I, I think it's the question of the age. Uh, Dana Boyd has written about this, the, we're in an, and, and, and Cory Doctorow as well. We're in an epistemological war. And when we see the world that fundamentally differently, uh, that's an issue. But I think the, the performance, the performative issue is a factor here. For whom are they performing? They're performing for each other to say we are together in this. We will say the same outrageous thing to show that uh, we belong. It's almost like mafia. I'll kill somebody to prove that I belong. I'll kill a fact or kill a truth to belong. But again, they're performing for media because it works, because it's a way to spread their message. It doesn't matter if it's true or false. It doesn't matter if they really believe it at all. I think most of the time they probably do not. But the statement of doing it works in this ecosystem we have today. And once again, I think that we're in a position where too much of what we do and say is um, just for the sake of media, just for the sake of that mass, and is not really working as we believe a decent public discourse should. I'm not sure if you really addressed the question. I mean, you and I, are, I'm sure, on the same side of the barricade when it comes to this stuff, but can you have a democracy, a viable, what you would call public conversation, when everyone sees the world in performative terms, if you have that Trumpian ontology? Well, for one thing, it's not everyone. Uh, it's, it's a considerable it's, number. Of it's people. a considerable number, that's true. And, and one of the questions that I think we have is, do we have to... Not, not to bring Nazi analogies here, but do we have to have well, destruction? Now. I've done it now. We're 30 minutes in and, Godwin, and the H word has come up. Report, report me. Um, but do you have to cauterize society? Do you have to have such destruction that that finally wakes up people and, and they see a different reality? Um, I hope not, but there have been cases where that's been the case uh, in, in history. And, and can we pull back? 
there's been a hope that demographic change is going to make it work in the U.S. Well, I don't know. A lot of uh, Latinx voters are heading toward Trump land. Um, that may not be the case, but it may be as well. Young people have made a difference in recent elections, and four years ago, X number of voters have died, some of them from COVID, uh, more so on the right than the left. Will that make a difference? Will, you know, every morning on Morning Joe, Joe Scarborough, former Republican, uh, constantly speculates about what would bring the Republicans back. I say, let them fail, Joe. Stop doing that. But Joe's a Republican at heart. Um, will the Republicans, will a form of that come back? I don't think so. Will they instead, will some number of them say losing in fact is no fun and what's wrong here and find a different path? I don't know. Lots of talk, Jeff, these days on reforming the internet. Some people think they should be closed down or aggressively regulated. You're again one of the most defiant and articulate defenders of the digital revolution. But even you acknowledge that changes need to be made. What do we need to do, both in a regulatory sense and as individual users and as Silicon Valley companies? What do we need to do, uh, which we can learn from Gutenberg, of avoiding violence and strengthening democracy and using that, this technology to make us happier and healthier? Well, that's the chapter I'll be working on on the plane back to New York uh, tomorrow is just trying to figure that out. And what I argue... You didn't put it in the book? No, new book, new book. So this uh, isn't, so the, the new book doesn't have a fix section? Uh, no, not really. But the, but, the, but the chapter in the new book is fixes question mark, so exactly that. So you're gonna force people to buy the second book? Uh, yeah, if I finish it. Um, and I don't know, but what I argue uh, is, I was on a, 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 pardon me for the long title, Transatlantic High Level Working Group on Content Moderation and Freedom of Expression, breath that was convened by Susan Ness, a former FCC commissioner, that brought together um, regulators, policymakers, academics, I don't count myself as that, journalists and researchers. And it turned out to be an excellent discussion. I thought I was going to dread it because I thought I'd be the only person in the room saying, ah, regulation has dangers and unintended consequences. But I wasn't the only person who said that. And we came out with um, a view that I think is a good view of regulation which says it was based on a, on a French regulator who, who had embedded inside Facebook and did fascinating work as a result. And, and I'll put this in my terms, not the group's terms, but I think that what we need is to hold companies accountable to promises they make. Now, the problem right there is they're not going to want to make promises because they don't want to be held accountable. But I think that's the process of regulation is to say that you tell us what you're going to do and we agree civil society, government, and companies that this is an appropriate uh, covenant. Uh, once again, community standards are imposed on the community by the company. The company makes no assurances itself of what it will do. I want to see the companies assure what they will do about privacy, about security, about the um, decency of the conversation, about uh, manipulation, about um, uh, how they how they treat their users about advertising and so on and so on and so on and then in the United States Federal Trade Commission model government doesn't tell them exactly how to operate which is what happens in something like Nets DG in Germany instead it says we're gonna hold you accountable for these warrants that you make in your covenant and we're going to demand that you give data to researchers so that they can see whether or not you are meeting the goals that you have set. And if you don't meet those goals, if you turn out a toothpaste that doesn't make your teeth whiter, then we go after you not for how you make the toothpaste, but for not meeting your promises. That I think becomes an interesting model where companies should give us assurances and should be made to give us assurances and made to be held accountable for those assurances to us, but not only companies, also regulators. They should be held accountable for using data and evidence and not just operating off moral panic and emotion. We as users should be held accountable to each other. Um, you know, I've, got, I've had to learn, I've had my moments with too much Cabernet online, and uh, I have to learn to be nicer to people and to ignore the trolls and to not amplify them and to make sure I fact check myself. They're small things, but every time we do something online, we are building the internet brick at a time. And I think we all have to make promises to each other and ourselves 
And that sounds pretty Pollyannish, I will admit, but I don't know another way to do it. I don't think that making a whole mess of laws can anticipate everything that goes wrong and will become um, contrarian uh, in that work. I don't think shutting down the companies or breaking them up is going to help. There'll be new ones. And the present proprietors of the internet are not forever. One of the biggest lessons for me from the Gutenberg parenthesis is how new many of the institutions we think of as forever are. The institution of editing, the institution of publishing, the institution of copyright. Uh, these things are the institution and the idea of the mass. These things are relatively new and they can change, like the institution of the nation itself. Um, so I don't know where this goes. These are choices that we will make and fight over. And to do that, I think we have to have a more sensible framework that enables ongoing discussion as new things happen. Nobody anticipated, I don't think, I, I can blame the internet for not, uh, the internet companies, for not uh, properly anticipating the manipulation that they went under. But I don't think anyone could have anticipated the degree at which that happened in 2016 election with the Russians and with Trump. Uh, circumstances change, and we've got to have a framework to be able to react to those changes collaboratively. What about when it comes to us individually in terms of our social media use or misuse? You mentioned earlier you, you've made your mistakes on there. You've been quite vocal in your critique of Elon Musk and of Twitter. You embraced Mastodon early, a kind of Web3 decentralized social network that doesn't seem to be going anywhere these days. Later uh, this week, I've got Leanne Patrick, and I'm sure you know her. She's the book maven. She's announced that she's leaving Twitter. Should we all leave Twitter, given that most of us aren't great fans of Elon Musk and this idea of X, which he introduced earlier this week? It's still Twitter to me. Um, I don't think we should leave Twitter quite yet. I, I don't want to support Musk. I don't want to support what he does. But there are there are communities there that are still there. In February, I held a uh, or I played host to a Black Twitter summit at my school. Four leading scholars of Black Twitter convened the group together, and it was an amazing discussion. Uh, one of them is Andre Brock Jr., who wrote Distributed Blackness, which is one of the key books on Black Twitter. And he wrote a recent uh, essay about this that, that basically says, we built this. We used the affordances in our own ways. We showed, we, uh, we uh, speaking as him, uh, Black Twitter, uh, used the affordances in their own ways to um, enable a place that did not only create movements like Black, Black Lives Matter, but that also enabled people to come together as communities in their real lives, their real joys and sorrows in a way that was never possible before. Uh, and define communities of of like and and what Brock says is I'm not going to abandon that uh, overnight. And when journalists choose to turn their backs on a place like Twitter, even now, they turn their backs once again on the voices that they have not represented well over the years. So I'm still on Twitter. Um, I can see a moment when I leave. Yes. But for now, I'm still there because there are people and communities I value who are still there, and I don't want to leave them. Now, when it comes to Mastodon, no, it's not huge. Uh, but you know what? That, I think, is important because when I joined Mastodon, it took me a few days to find a critical mass of people that I respect and like and have good conversations with, and I do to this day. I think that we have to reset our idea of scale when it comes to uh, social media and conversations. We have to go back to that idea of the 4,000 subscriber newspaper before the mechanization of media and say that that is big enough to be influential or to be worthwhile to listen to or to just accomplish. And, and I think if we reset the scale of social media down to an individual instance on Mastodon or to a new blue sky that probably won't be as big as Twitter was, uh, I think that's healthy. Adam Masseri of, of Facebook suggested that people don't want to scream at one another. They don't want political discussion, which explains why Facebook or Instagram introduced threads. Uh, what's your take on, on, on the Facebook initiative with threads? And could there be some truth in what Masseri said? Most people simply don't want to discuss politics, particularly given our divisive and combustible age. So well, the conversation is fine, Jeff, as long as it doesn't deal with politics. Well, I think Masseri is saying two things at once. 
One is that uh, I agree with him. I don't think people do want to scream at each other. And there's lots of research that says that people do not, in fact, pick their friends based on politics as much as we believe that they do. But he's also saying something else about a corporate policy, which is given the regulatory efforts to create protectionist legislation in Australia and lately Canada and also here in the U.S. Uh, to try to disadvantage uh, the platforms when it comes to news. And as you know, in Canada, Bill C-18 passed, both Facebook and Google said they will pull news out of their platforms. It's a little more troubling for Google, but for Facebook, it's a pretty easy decision. Let's go back to puppies and parties. Let's get, get rid of the things that get us in trouble. They proved this thanks to, uh, they demonstrated it thanks to Rupert Murdoch in Australia, where they pulled the news for a brief while and it worked fine. And so I think that uh, Facebook has found that they don't need news. They've pulled out all the support they were giving news. They were trying to make friends with the news organizations. They mm -hmm. saw that that's futile because the news organizations are still going to be mean to them. So they can live without news. Thank you very much. So I think that's part of what Masari is saying is don't expect to come to threads to get your morning news report. And finally, Jeff, uh, AI, you touched on it earlier. How does this all play out in terms of the Gutenberg parenthesis? Uh, Gutenberg was living, maybe history repeats itself, but there was no AI around when Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press. Is AI a threat or a challenge or an opportunity for, shall we say, uh, digital idealists like yourself? Um, any technology can be used by malign actors badly. Uh, it can be used by people stupidly. Uh, you remember the, the, the schmuck lawyer who used ChatGPT for his federal filing in court. I went and, in person and covered his show cause hearing, which was fascinating. Uh, one of the lawyer's lawyers said to the judge, well, thank you, Your Honor, you have shown the world uh, the, the danger of ChatGPT. And the judge said, oh, I didn't set out to do anything of the sort. And what, what's, what's true of that story is true of what, what's happening now is the 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 lawyer made a mistake in going to ChatGPT, but when it was called to his attention that the cases that he had taken out of ChatGPT and put in his filing could not be found by opposing counsel and the judge, he doubled down and went back to ChatGPT and said, are they real? And then he doubled down again, went back and had it turn out gibberish cases. The mistakes there were not the technologies. It did what it was programmed to do. The technology the mistakes were the humans, the, the lawyer. And I think that's what we see a lot of going on around AI. Um, the thing that troubles me most about AI right now is the AI boys and their philosophy. Uh, I've been reading a lot more about uh, uh, long-termism and the acronym TESCREAL and the philosophies that say that we must pay attention to the 10 to the 58th humans in the far future more than those of us today. I think it's a very, very troubling uh, view. Emil Torres and Timnit Gebru have done a lot of work on this and I recommend to folks to follow them to get a fuller picture of this. But this idea of this X risk, this existential risk that, that these people are so powerful and they can bang their chests and say that we can destroy mankind, stop us, is marketing and bravado and macho and bullshit. And so I'm not worried about the technology in those cases. It's not going to destroy mankind, but I am worried about these jerks.